Hello everyone, I'm Rania Kalik and this is Dispatches. Africa's Sahel region encompasses Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, and Chad, and is surprisingly neglected in Anglophone discussions of imperialism and the war on terror. This might be because of a general marginalization of all things Africa, but also because it's a traditionally Francophone area, which means there are linguistic barriers for most Americans. This is a shame because it's a fascinating arena of colonialism, liberation struggles, imperialist interventions, clashes with jihadis, and coups d'etat. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Hannah Armstrong, a longtime researcher with years of experience living and working in Algeria, Mauritania, Morocco, and then covering the Sahel for the International Crisis Group from her base in Senegal. Hannah, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's so good to have you on. Um, and like, let's just jump right into it. You know, can we start by maybe defining some basic terms uh, for our audience who might not be so familiar with the region that you work in? When we talk about the Sahel, what do we mean? And when did most of its countries gain independence from the French? And did they, in fact, achieve full independence? Um, sure, that's a, that's a great starting point. Uh, the Sahel means a lot of different things. Um, the terminology gets thrown around a lot. Uh, the countries that have been most in the news lately have been the, the sort of three countries of the central Sahel. Those are Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. Um, by more sort of environmental uh, definitions, the Sahel can send as far um, west as Cabo Verde, which is a, a you know, sequence of islands in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but the way that the terminology tends to get used today um, is, has become sort of synonymous with this area where um, this conflict, this sort of multi-layered conflict is, is spreading and sort of anchoring in. Um, and so the three countries of the Central Sahel, which I mentioned, there's also um, Chad and Mauritania, which get included in um, a sort of sub-regional entity called the, the G5 Sahel, which is sort of a, a French-backed um, regional creation. Um, and then, you know, according to, according to other um, types of dynamics that predate this conflict and that predate the colonial encounter, um, you know, it's, it's more meaningful to think of the Sahel as an entity that's very plugged into um, North Africa and, and West Africa, especially Nigeria, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. Um, I just wanted to so, throw a quick for those to give people like a little visual throw up this map just to like give people an idea of the area of the world we're talking about here uh, that you just mentioned. But please continue. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So, um, you know, the, the countries, the countries that are, are maybe um, most relevant at the moment, you know, are, are really or that we can really kind of focus on are, are Mali and Niger, um, which you can see are really sort of right in, in the kind of heart of Africa, um, landlocked. They share this this um, vast Saharan landscape, which is which is very beautiful and, and a wonderful place to um, visit. But are also um, connected by cultural and economic links into um, the greener, more lush areas of, of West Africa. Um, so that's that's sort of a, a quick a quick overview. Um, and then in terms of independence, you know, in, in the early '60s, when most of the African countries were getting, getting their independence, um, your question as to how independent are they today? I mean, I think maybe this is something we'll keep returning to over the course of this conversation. Um, but to, to sort of take an, an early stab at it, I think um, you know one one way to understand what's happening um, in Mali, in particular, right now, is is a sort of extended process of of decolonization, as we're we're in a moment where we're um, you know. Actually, what we're actually seeing is Mali asking French troops to leave its territory. 
Um, the, the full context is, is a lot more complicated than that. Um, and, and I had the um, fortune of, of being present uh, in 2012, 2013, when um, the tide was moving in a very different direction and Mali was um, actually pleading with France to sort of come in and, and lend a hand. Um, so it's, it's not as though um, this process is unilinear um, or you know very easy to sort of pin pin down um, you know and I, at the time I remember being really sort of surprised that you know this this proud post independence country um, would would really um, so humbly sort of ask its former colonial power you know to, to send troops uh, and help out but that was that was the situation they were in and it could be it's a situation that could repeat itself um, within the near term so. While the moment we find ourselves in now is one of sort of um, trying to expel that presence, um, that that's that's by no means um, a unilinear or, or simple um, moment in time. So I do want to get back to the to like the French intervention, but first, I mean, if we could go back in time a little bit, I know that U.S. contractors were training security forces in in the Sahel during the early years of the war on terror. So when we look at this troubled region, I guess, if you want to call it that today, an attempt to understand the causes, should we start, you know, the conversation in 2011 or in 2001 or, I mean, when do you think and why? There's a few, a few sort of moments that bear consideration. Um, one would be, um, you know, it was it was under George W. Bush that the United States started getting involved in programs to combat and prevent violent extremism in the Sahel. Um, that that certainly hasn't gone very well. Um, prior to that, anywhere, <laughs> <laughs> anywhere, indeed. Um, prior to that, you had um, there was a, a conflict in Algeria uh, that, in some ways, was a catalyst for. Um, the types of radical movements that sort of shifted into the into the northern part of the Sahel, um, and that was an offshoot of the the GSPC, which evolved during the um, Algerian Black Decade, and then was sort of pushed um, further and further south, and then ended up uh, planting roots in uh, northern Mali, for instance. There was also the um, intervention in Libya in 2011, um, which had a couple of massive consequences for uh, the Sahelian countries. One was that um, a great deal of former rebels who were had been sort of integrated into the Libyan security forces or had found jobs and forms of economic stability in Libya uh, suddenly were, were uprooted. Um, and uh, at the same time, all of these weapons depots were um, sort of abandoned or um, opened up for anybody to come by. And so you had these sort of huge convoys of um, rebels and arms that started to, to drift uh, westward um, with great consequences for, for Mali. But that's not to, you know, sometimes the, the Sahelian countries can, can try to sort of say, you know, oh, well, if NATO hadn't intervened in, in Libya, you know, none of this would have happened. The reality is, is a lot more um, complex than that. And the circumstances were certainly um, ripe for, you know, a conflict creation. So that might have, you know, lit the match, but um, the things, things weren't going particularly well. Um, and then just to add sort of one more historical context factor, um, you know, before Algeria uh, sent some, some, you know, before some Algerian radicals started to sort of network with their, their brothers to the, to the south, south of the border, um, you know, there were traditions of um, West African jihad that arose in sort of anti-colonial contexts. 
um, and had you know very strong cultural um, and political legacies that some of these um, contemporary extremist movements are, are really sort of drawing on um, and, and at times um, drawing legitimacy from. Uh, so, yeah. No, that's no, that's a, all, all those points. I actually like want to dig into a few of them, but first I would just, just thinking about like the middle East where I'm based, um, you know, the borders matter a little bit more now, but like historically they were pretty like non-existent in many ways. So I'm just curious, you know, how do borders matter in the Sahel? Do identities and communities and movements like transcend borders the way they might have in, let's say like Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, I'm just putting it in my context, but I'm curious how it works there. That's a huge, huge question. And borders are, um, you know, one of the most important issues. And a lot of the ways that the conflict um, is evolving really are around the sort of issue of where are the boundaries, where are the borders. Um, so, for instance, the epicenter of the Central Sahel conflict right now is literally in the, what's called the tri-border area, which is the, the region between um, Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso, kind of bordering Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. And it's not a coincidence that this is this kind of nexus nucleus of, of borders because, um, you know, in some ways, the populations that live near the border or that um, for their livelihoods depend on being able to cross the border, uh, these are some of the communities that have been most impacted by uh, both the rise in violent extremism on the one hand and the rise in sometimes really... Um, catastrophic efforts to push back against violent extremism. Um, so it ends up the the states which now have this have are, are themselves saddled with these these counterinsurgency projects where um, they're finding their the communities in border regions um, are are very vulnerable to sort of recruitment by violent extremist groups in part because being uh, on or or among the borders they've been really sort of marginalized economically. Um, often there are um, certain communities, whether pastoralist or Fulani, who have really not been integrated into the state or who have been actively preyed upon by state forces or by um, other communities that have worked more closely with states. So um, there's a sense in which borders become kind of synonymous with you know, marginalization, underdevelopment. Um, and this is, of course, in countries that are already um, you know, the world's most you know, poor Another factor that's impacting the borders is there's this sort of new push to um, enforce borders and securitize borders. And this is in part being driven by the European Union, um, which since 2014, 2015 has been dealing with what it considers a crisis of migrant and refugee arrivals. Um, and so it's been, there's been, a, there have been a lot of um, partnerships uh, where the EU is really sort of pushing the Sahelian states to um, create conditions of greater security, greater surveillance in border areas. Um, and this, this has not sort of helped, helped with this trend. Um, other, other border dynamics that it's interesting to think about are um, a little more nebulous, maybe a little more abstract, such as the border between North Africa and, and West Africa, um, which is, is a major sort of, um, can, you know, doesn't exist as such but um, can, can be found in various conflict dynamics. Um, there's also a sense in which um, the Sahel, which we've already sort of discussed you know, as, as something that's emerging as a geographic entity, um, which is neither North Africa nor West Africa, uh, used to be you know, the, countries, the, the five countries of the Sahel, um, four of them were considered West Africa, and one of them, Mauritania, was considered North Africa. 
Um, and so for the four that were considered West Africa, they were part of this regional block, which was trying to sort of do away with borders within the regional block, um, which has a lot of economic benefits for the population, promotes trade, um, free circulation of labor. Uh, and so the, the you know, and, and also um, conflict resolution, you know, the West African bloc ECOWAS as, as a major agent in, in resolving conflict. Um, so the creation or the emergence of this um, sort of artificial entity, which is the five, the five countries of the Sahel, um, you know, creates, creates something a little bit different, um, you know, with, with, of course, a border around it. And in some ways, um, you know, that is having consequences for uh, mobility, for projects of um, economic integration. Uh, and, you know, part, part of that is related to EU anxiety over um, the circulation of West Africans, which is really you know, something that um, the, the European Union, um, you know, as it seeks to externalize its, its borders into West Africa, um, you know, it hasn't always been aware of some of the implications uh, of these policies in terms of, of conflict and, and instability. Well, speaking of implications of their policies, I do want to go back to Libya just for a moment. I mean, obviously, it's more complex than just the NATO intervention in Libya destabilized the region and that's it. That said, you know, if you had to lay it out, what chain of events were set into motion by the collapse of Libya uh, that affected the Sahel? Most directly, um, you had an outflow from Libya of northern Malian uh, former rebels and weapons, heavy weapons. Um, you know, there were some interesting, um, at the time, people wondered sort of how these how these caravans uh, were able to move without being um, detected or prevented um, by NATO. Um, so there, there's, there are some different, different theories behind that. Um, they also swept right through Niger without doing anything and sort of went straight for, for Northern Mali, um, which had been grappling with the implementation of uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, um, which was sort of this evolution of, of the GSPC from Algeria. Uh, and starting to have more more regional projects, um, so that would be you know the most that would be sort of the most direct consequence. Um, in a broader sense, you know certainly there there have been some um, you know as the Islamic State uh, became an entity within Libya, there was um, relationships between that and um, projects in North Africa um, and in, in the Sahel as well. Um, we now have you know the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara is one of the two main um, violent extremist organizations that is um, doing doing pretty well for itself in, in the south, <laughs> um, and you know, and also you know the the sort of um, the crumbling of of the state. You know, Libya, uh, you know, certainly had had there was certainly a lot you could criticize um, Gaddafi for and, and the Libyan state for, um, and that's very important to do. But you know, you, you was you know there was at that point a state in, in place that, um, you know, had institutions that was controlling, um, you know, uh, the borders. Um, and, you know, I was, I was um, in the, in the region at that point and in Algeria a couple of, a couple of years later um, and the security consequences for the region of uh, the border control on the Libyan side of the border, just sort of crumbling um, have been, have been immense. You know, that includes Tunisia, that includes Algeria, that includes, um, Niger, Chad, and and eventually Mali, which ended up um, probably having the worst consequences. Um, so that's a huge, you know, that's a huge regional echo uh, of that intervention. Of course, the African Union had really warned um, that this was very likely to happen, 
uh, Algeria also, you know, had actively warned, um, you know, that recklessness in Libya would have massive consequences um, for the continent. And we're still seeing, you know, we're still seeing those consequences play out. Um, but again, I mean, just to add, you know, I think sometimes this becomes uh, something that leaders of Sahelian countries will try to play up in, in the sense of, you know, well, you know, you brought, you brought the problems, you know, the, the West created the problems. And, um, you know, the reality is if things had been going better, um, you know, the, the impact would certainly not have been as catastrophic as it's been. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I also understand that in much of the Sahel traditional conflicts between the pastoralists who like need to herd their animals to graze on land and, and farmers uh, were exacerbated by the conflict in Libya. Like some pastoralists had learned to make money by the gun in Libya and then came back and used those skills in local conflicts over land, which you kind of alluded to a little bit. But how have these local conflicts, uh, which obviously have their local dynamics to them, uh, you know, apart from Libya, but how have they changed because of events in Libya? It's, it's a little less direct than that. Um, you know, I'm not aware of, of pastoralist groups that, um, you know, were, were shunted out of Libya due to the conflict. Um, but, you know, to, to sort of take an example of, you know, how local conflict has been exacerbated by um, sort of counter-terrorist efforts, um, you know, I would, I would kind of invite a look at the Mali-Niger border, um, you know, which is an area where, um, you know, that had witnessed rebellion before, that had witnessed communal militias before, um, where you have different communities. Some of them are pastoralists, some of them are semi-pastoralists, some of them are farmers. Um, and uh, for decades, you know, there had been sort of competition between these groups. Um, and in the wake of the rebellion in Mali, um, so this is kind of a complicated chain, but so you had, uh, you know, rebels who left Libya and started rebellion in northern Mali. Um, the rebellion in northern Mali, which got hijacked by violent extremist groups who ended up sort of pushing the rebels out and, and taking control themselves of the main urban centers of, of northern Mali. Um, the sort of arming of these groups as they advance so southwards um, created pressure on other communities to, to pick up arms um, for self-defense. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then as you had um, external actors come in, you know, such as the French Operation Barkhan, um, you know, come in to try to undertake counter-terror operations or support um, local self-defense groups that, you know, claims to be uh, going up against the violent extremists. Um, at times you had, you know, certain communities targeting other communities for, for their own reasons, um, you know, and using the um, agenda of counterterrorism to sort of try to promote their own interests or try to, um, you know, secure access to land or water resources or um, carry out reprisals uh, against communities, you know. So, so there was this kind of spiral um, where the counterterror operations um, really contributed to the, a much worse dynamic of um, communal conflict, uh, inter, inter and intra-communal conflict. Um, and that's been and that's been quite worrying. I mean, the, the casualties are, are much higher. Um, the grievances are, are quite deep, you know, and this goes back to what we discussed earlier about sort of marginalized um, border communities. Uh, you know, but the, the, the means of destruction that they have access to now, now that you have this kind of, you know, Islamic state, Al Qaeda versus the West versus local states, 
rubric that's kind of mapped onto those local conflicts, um, the scale of destruction is is a lot higher. Yeah, that yeah, it's pretty um, horrible. And honestly, like I think that would be the case almost anywhere when you add those like layers of Al Qaeda, ISIS, or whatever it may be to like any place in the world, the local conflicts will get worse and more violent. Um, but, you know, Qataris and other Gulf countries played a role in supporting like Muslim institutions and clerics in the region. And I'm curious if this contributed to the radicalization of perhaps previously more tolerant Muslims, much in the same way that we saw what we've seen happen in the Middle East. This is, this is something that remains somewhat um, understudied. Uh, you know, one, one thing that people are aware of is that the, the leader of um, the local, the Sahelian Islamic, uh, the Sahelian Al-Qaeda entity um, was, was based in Saudi Arabia. Um, so he, you know, Iyad Arali, who was at one point um, the Malian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Um, and, you know, people who know him say that that was a, a very formative period for him, perhaps not in the, in the best sense. Um, and, you know, in terms of, in terms of Qatari Gulf influence, uh, you know, I think up until a certain point, I don't think we're seeing it as much anymore, but up until a certain point, you know, there was certainly um, things that you hear about mosques and certain figures uh, receiving financing. Um, but this hasn't really been very well documented or established. I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of confusion about religious actors and what they represent. Um, sometimes religious actors can be opportunists. Um, they might present themselves as allying with, um, you know, Muslim Brotherhood or Salafism, um, you know, or, you know, against those, those types of um, ideology. Uh, but, you know, the, the reality is the, the local religious context is, is quite complex and is not very well um, understood by, by actors in the Gulf. So, you know, certainly money was coming in. Um, that's not surprising, you know, from some of the world's richest countries, some of the world's poorest countries. Um, you know, I think some, there was some chaos that, that may have resulted from that. Um, but we're not, we're not seeing, we're not really seeing that anymore is my, is my sense. And, um, you know, I think uh, some some religious entities have actually been kind of shrewd about balancing, um, you know, uh, Qatari uh, um, offers of support against Saudi offers of support, for instance. So it's it's interesting to see how um, it's interesting to see how efforts to sort of impose, you know, or cultivate, um, you know, certain more exclusive strands of, of ideology are being frustrated by, you know, an almost natural sort of plurality on on the grounds um and the, the religious landscape is is really is quite wonderfully diverse you know it's it's all overwhelmingly muslim but you know you have a lot of animism you have a lot of different local practices um so you know that's that's a that's sort of a a, a source of, of cultural richness under under good circumstances so then it kind of raises the question of like how much of the phenomenon of jihadism in the Sahel is about ideological support for like Al Qaeda or ISIS rather than pre-existing tensions having to do with ethnic or, or other identities or like socioeconomic tensions and, and so on. I don't know if you want to speak to any of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely it most, it's most of the time it's really, it's really a vehicle um, for other, other types of grievances. Um, you know, the, the implantation of that ideology is, is not very deep, although there are historical roots, um, you know, of, of earlier jihadist movements, you know, who, who, you know, stood up against corrupt politicians, who, who stood up against colonial encroachment, 
Um, you know, so that does have resonance, you know, but um, for the most part, you know, it's, it's not, this is, it's, it's, it's wrong to sort of think about this as an, as an ideological struggle. It's much more, um, it's much more about survival, um, you know, and what that's, you know, the case of communities and villages um, who are really sort of struggling with the effects of climate change, uh, with the rise of circulation of militias and armed groups, and so then they need to sort of arm themselves. Um, so what we're seeing is a lot of a lot of sort of fault lines in terms of, um, you know, farmers versus herders or this community versus that community. Um, distinctions are becoming sort of, um, you know, more, more, more violent. There's more potential for violence in, in these types of differences. Um, and that's, and that's, you know, just a terrible, just a terrible thing to sort of see, see happen. Of yeah. course. And then, you know, in that sense, like how connected, like how connected are groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS in this region to the sort of central leadership based in the Arab world? Because I feel like sometimes, um, you know, in news media, especially like in sort of ISIS, the peak of ISIS, you'd have like some, like, uh, some group in some African country, like, be like, we're the ISIS of this country. And I'm like, but are you even really talking to ISIS? Like, the, you know, <laughs> so yeah, how connected, is there actually a connection between the groups in the Sahel who, you know, claim to be Al-Qaeda or ISIS to that central leadership? I can't, I can't really speak to that in detail. I mean, there are people who, who kind of monitor that more closely. Um, you know, for instance, the Islamic State, you know, there's, there's competition. You know, sometimes you have different Islamic State chapters <laughs> yeah. in the region sort of competing with each other to get the attention and resources from, from the central Islamic State. Um, the central Islamic State, you know, did include... Um, references to local groups in its communications at times when it wasn't doing very well elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think, I think, you know, this, this isn't sort of um, a priority area for those organizations. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's somewhat on the margins. Um, one thing I will say uh, that has been sort of advantageous and empowering about belonging within those networks and those organizations is that it, it tends to um, do a better job of, of um, sort of overlooking the types of differences that are being, you know, that are heating up um, and, and promoting unity, you know, as, as Muslims, as, you know, people in this organization. Um, so it's, it's interesting to, it's, it's interesting to note that, um, you know, the, one of the things that really sort of propelled um, the, the Al-Qaeda affiliate uh, in the early years of this crisis, you know, in 2013, 2014, um, is that unlike the um, rebellion, the largely Tuareg rebellion that it sort of piggybacked in on, um, you know, that was about the, the interests of Tuaregs or the interests of certain ethnic groups largely based in the north. Um, and the, you know, the groups affiliated with, with um, extremists at that point, uh, you know, were coming in with a very different message that was much more inclusive and much more about promoting, um, promoting national unity. Um, not national unity, but sort of, you know, promoting unity among different, different um, groups. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, that distinction still, still sort of holds, you know, when you look at, um, there's, there's a temptation, sometimes analysts will sort of look at, um, you know, the Islamic State in the, in the greater Sahara, um, which is really um, based along the mali Niger border as a largely Fulani uh, group. But, you know, when I was studying it closely a couple of years ago, the dynamic at that Point was they were really succeeding in recruiting members of all of the different ethnic groups. So, you know, you had, in terms of the armed actors on the ground, you know, you had uh, French counter-terror soldiers, you had uh, ethnic self-defense groups, which were getting support from French counter-terror uh, operation. And, you know, then you had these, um, 
violent extremists who were who actually had a much more inclusive approach and who were succeeding in um, creating these units where you had you know mixed you know coordinating between these these different communities who in a different context were, were fighting against one another um, so there's there's a power you know there's a power um, it's it's unfortunate that the the unification um, trend is on that side yeah uh, you know and and the states the states really sort of you know are in a position of needing to sort of win hearts and minds, um, you know, which is never, never a good phrase, but, um, you know, they, they sort of need to get back that, that, you know, this, this unification. Um, but instead what we see is, you know, abuses by, we see security forces going out and sort of, um, you know, massacring, uh, members of certain communities. So it's, it's not, they're not making it easier for themselves. No, not at all. And then just to bring it back to the French, um, who are so important in this region, like both historically and and in the in the last two decades? Why do the French care so much about the Sahel? Is it like this attachment to their former colonies? Is it economic interests, like purely imperialist? Is it genuine security concerns? Like, what is it that compels them to have this sort of like uh, parental style of dealing with this region? There, there's a lot. There's a lot to say on this on this question. Um, I, so so much. I'm. I don't even know where to start. But um, you know, the first thing I'll say is on on the ground among Sahelian populations, there's a very strong perception that the French want the resources. You know that this is very resource rich territory, and the French are there to sort of you know um, gain access to the resources. And th- this is really this is really sort of inaccurate. Um, you know, it's it's not a very resource rich territory. Um, areas that do have resources are increasingly contracting with the Chinese. Uh, you know, the French have, have their main economic interest in terms of extractive industries is, is in, you know, uranium in northern Niger. And they've really sort of, um, they've been decreasing production and exploitation in that area for years. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's important to kind of not get, not get swept away in that, in that, you know, um, arguments. Uh, what are the French, you know, what, what is the argument? Um, I would say the most salient, you know, the, the two, the two things that I would kind of lead with are, um, this is an area where France has an opportunity to behave like a superpower. Um, you know, it can come in with troops and helicopters and, um, you know, write, write the things that have gone wrong. Uh, France doesn't have many areas where it is, it is an opportunity to sort of behave like a superpower. Um, so that's that's a very important um, aspect of France's sort of geopolitical attachment to the Sahel. Um, I do just want to add another- one thing about resources real quick, because yeah. I would be remiss not to mention this is this is according to Oxfam, something like a third of French like lamps or whatnot, light bulbs, however you want to put it, are uh, receive electricity due to uranium from Niger. So I, I know it's not the only reason French would, France would get involved, but I, that is one thing that I have heard people say in their complaints that like France just wants their resources is this, this statistic is often highlighted. I just want to throw that out there. I have <laughs> no, you, no, and you're right too. And, and, you know, I mentioned that that's, that's their main, that is the, their main economic interest is the, is the, the uranium in Northern Niger. Right, right. Yeah. But if you look at, you know, I mean, at the time that, They've been investing, you know, billions into their stabilization efforts across the region. Uh, uranium production, uranium extraction, and refinement has been declining, mm. um, and uranium prices after Fukushima, you know, shot down, um, you know, and so there and there was a lot of uncertainty. We may see some changes now with the, you know, pressure 
um, with the crisis in Ukraine for transition to, you know, maybe, maybe we might see more, um, we might see uranium production going up. Mm. That's not clear yet. And France certainly has reserved the right to kind of decline production and then, and then go up again. Um, and that's, and that's, you know, a whole other kind of conversation, which, which has very real consequences for the Nigerian economy and is anchored in, um, France sort of be creating a cartel uh, of, of Nigerian uranium. And there's some great research that's been done on that. Um, so it does, you know, it does have, it does have material extractive um, interests, but that's restricted to Northern Nigeria. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they, there's nothing in Mali, um, you know, and, and, you know, when you look at the sort of, um, well, I mean, that's, that's a separate subject, but, um, you know, it's, it's something that gets, it's something that gets, um, that gets, um, you know, kind of, kind of carelessly tossed around, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, I think the real, what's really kind of pulling France into the region is, is like I said, this kind of opportunity to, um, behave like a superpower and be seen as a superpower on the world stage, um, by other superpowers. And that's, you know, an important part of, of France's identity and how's it, how it sees itself, um, you know, as having a stature, it may not have the, the means that the United States has, but, you know, this is a way for it to sort of say, well, you know, we're doing that too. You know, we're here <laughs> fighting terrorism, you know, stabilizing countries. It may not seem to you and I like something that you would, it's the you American, would boast about. It's the American but. in me. Well, one, the American in me is like instinctively like the French think they're a superpower, but also, ew, don't be a superpower. But yeah, I hear, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then another another thing that I think, another thing that, you know, I would I would mention in this context that I think is sort of pulls, pulls the France, pulls France into the Sahel is um, there's this sort of romantic attachment to you know the the Sahara as like you know the the extreme edge of the universe um, you know and it's this it's this um, sort of theater where French troops can you know um, really prove you know their their you know French French weapons can you know um, do their thing and French soldiers can be real men um, you know in this <laughs> in this spot that's just like you know, the most, the most, one of the most extreme environments, you know, on, on the planet, um, you know, and this is, and this is, this harkens back to, you know, what was, what was referred to um, in the 19th century as the, the penetration, the French penetration of the Sahara, um, when you had these um, missions, these expedition missions that were sent from, you know, the colonial office in Paris to try to just cross certain parts of the desert, um, usually ended up in, um, you know, cannibalism and, horrible deaths for the French soldiers who were involved in them. For like a good um, novel for someone but, to write. You know, there was, a, yeah, I mean, there was, you know, the, the project carried a certain, um, you know, there, there was something, there was something very seductive about this area um, for, for, you know, that, that political project. Uh, and I think that that, I think that still exists. Um, you know, it's a very, it's a very rough environment. Um, and I think there's something about that that, you know, is, is um, inherently, you know, sort of activates this desire to sort of prove, prove oneself, you know, especially in a, in a military context. It's like that European explorer um, vibe, I guess. Um, so then in that sense, in that case, like what was what was the impact of the French intervention and did it actually end up pouring more fuel onto the fire? Um, did it actually help? I don't think it did, but. I'll let you <laughs> be the judge. I mean, the, the, the impact of the French intervention is something that we'll be, you know, kind of discussing, you know, I think, I think it's too early to say what the impact, what the impact is. Um, in the short term, it arrested the southward advance of um, 
violent extremist groups, uh, which was what Malians asked the French to come and help them with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it achieved that, and it kind of um, you know created a, a security structure and an international stabilization um, infrastructure that kind of allowed for um, making progress in terms of uh, negotiating with armed actors in northern Mali, um, who were the ones who, who um, triggered the crisis in the first place. Uh, but as that was happening, um, the, the conflict was sort of shifting south from northern Mali into central Mali. Um, and in that case, as, as it was shifting or um, factors pushing the shift, you know, are related to um, the, military, the military intervention. Um, which, you know, did, you know, in, in ways that it um, sort of worked with security forces uh, or worked with um, ethnic militias and self-defense groups, just created um, a really reckless, terrifying uh, militarization of, of the entire region um, where everybody's sort of had to take up arms and where various, you know, fault lines um, that had lain dormant or had been managed um, have just erupted and in flames. That's horrible. Um, and then why did other European countries get involved, like the Germans, for example, or others? Did they just want to show support for the French? Was this about uh, preventing more Africans from coming to Europe? Was it a mix of both? The French made a very good case that, um, you know, this this region needed, um, urgently needed uh, stabilization efforts. Um, now, how is there are there any risks that this region poses to, to Western Europe? Not at all. Um, from the Western European, you know, in terms of in terms of attacks, um, certainly not. You know, there hasn't been a single attack on European soil that's been linked to um, groups, extremist groups in the Sahel. Uh, one area where Europe has come to see this region as posing a risk to it is uh, migration. Um, so not that the area is generating so many migrants, but um, Niger in particular is sort of a hub for sub-Saharan uh, migration up through northern Niger and then through across Libya and, and um, over into Europe. So there's a sense in which Europe's interest was activated by um, the need to, you know, by the, the argument that, um, you know, these countries really needed uh, support. Um, you know, in terms of development projects, in terms of um, stabilization efforts, in terms of training for security forces. So, you know, there was a very, alongside the deployment of this counter-terror force, um, there was this whole superstructure of, uh, you know, security and development nexus uh, efforts to, you know, train security forces to support um, development projects that would ideally uh, facilitate the return of the state to troubled areas and support stability in the long term. Um, and so these were the types of projects that European actors, um, you know, got involved in, in part, you know, motivated by sort of humanitarian um, reasoning, you know, thinking that um, this was a way to kind of help with a region that was suffering from a great deal of trauma. Um, and in part motivated by, um, you know, the, the threat of migration um, and the, the sort of weak uh, argument that, you know, stabilizing these areas would... Um, you know, sort of balance out the pushbacks in the Mediterranean, so to speak, you know, to put it, to put it bluntly. Um, so, you know, that was, that was, that was definitely sort of a part of it. Um, you know, now we're seeing, we're seeing a kind of a retreat from Mali and a, and a restructuring um, of the, of the superstructure. You know, I think a lot of attention um, is going to turn now towards Europe, European soil, you know, as the, as the conflict in Ukraine, um, 
shifts shifts you know budgets and attention. There's also a very um, strong awareness that the approach has really not worked in the Sahel. Um, you know, it's almost as though the more stabilizing um, actors, Western, primarily Western actors, have done, um, the more unstable the the region has become. Wow, um, you know, shocking! Certainly, <laughs> you know, it's, it's you know maybe maybe to be expected, but there was certainly a lot of good faith efforts and and um, you know people who came in with with strong ideas and wanting to you know create schools and um, have more professionalism in the security forces so that people in villages at risk. Um, you know, could could feel safer, uh, but it it certainly hasn't worked out as planned. And the clearest symbol of that is, um, you know, Mali, the the main country um, where this superstructure of stabilization has been focused. Um, you know, after you know, almost a decade of counterterror deployments and um, very expensive training of the security forces, um, had one coup after another right. in 2020 and 2021, um, and then of course. Um, beyond the offense of, you know, um, Western trained security forces toppling democratic governments, you have the, the reality that um, a lot of Malians feel like this, the military is actually a more democratic actor than the, the you know, allegedly democratic um, administration it toppled, mm-hmm. um, which did have Western support. So that kind of gives you a sense of, of how complex, um, you know, the, the political landscape has become and, and how, to what extent, you know, Western um, stabilizing actors were really sort of in over their heads. Um, you know, now, since since the second coup, there's there's just a sort of, um, you know, people are getting out. They're just kind of getting out. There's not much they can do. So why, speaking to the issue of the coups, like why? Why so many coups in Mali? What Can you tell us what happened? Uh, why so many coups in Mali? I mean, it's a lot um, in a very short amount of time. It's a lot of coups. Yeah. It's a lot of coups. A lot of coups, lots of coups, lots of coups in the region. Yeah. It has, a, has a great, great knack for, for coups. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in a nutshell, uh, what's the the democratic, um, you know, the 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 political prospects of democratic um, administrations have been, uh, you know, basically democratic. Democratic. Um, I want to say I'm. I'm not saying regimes because that you can't say democratic regimes. But so democratic um, rule, you know, has often been more associated with external um, funding and validation and less associated with um, domestic um, stability and an actual genuine um, democracy and grassroots legitimacy. Uh, so you know, w- one thing that we we keep seeing again and again, and we've seen it in Burkina a couple of times, and we've seen it in Guinea, and we've seen it in Mali a couple of times within the span of 18 months, um, and we've certainly seen it in Niger, uh, is that sometimes the military is able to sort of step in. And, you know, this isn't the type of coup, you know, often these, these aren't the types of coups that, you know, you think of where the military is seizing power, um, you know, sort of bad military dictators are seizing power. You know, in, if you look at the public reception or public support for for these coups, um, it's it's enormous, and it really sort of speaks to how flawed um, the supposedly democratic processes are in these countries. And that's you know the the kind of focal point of Western support for these countries is promoting democracy. Um, you know, creating you know improving elections. Um, you know, improving institutions and this idea of democratization. And the the insistence of these coups coming one after the other, you know, and always with um, generally with a strong degree of popular support, really sort of speaks to um, how how theatrical 
those those types of democratic, I'm going to say, regimes have been, mm-hmm. um, and how often you know they're really performing for for outside donors and not um, responding to you know the needs of their of their constituencies. So sometimes the militaries are, are appearing better poised to do so. Of course, that doesn't tend to last very long. Um, but you know who else who else is going to do it? Is, is how it's perceived. Yeah. It's funny when you're like democratic regime, it doesn't seem like the right way to put it. I think sometimes I get confused like about some, what we mean when we say democracy too, because is it just elections? Like, is that just, is it just elections? If there's no grassroots support, like do elections just mean democracy? I don't know, but that's a conversation for another day. But you know, you talked yeah. about the Europeans leaving uh, and kind of the coup being a part of it. Did the French really have a moral objection to this or did they want to leave Mali anyway? Like you also mentioned like a change in priorities. Um, and I, this is obviously more speculation um, than I know you're not like inside the French government, but I'm sure you talked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there were plans to, the French didn't want to leave Mali, but there were certainly already plans in place to um, sort of transfer the ownership from France to Europe, <laughs> which, which sort of came as, as it became clear, clear that the, that the approach wasn't really working. And, you know, of course this was very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French were spending a lot of money on this. Um, so while, while the, the French kind of tactic at that point in sort of 20, 2020, um, end of 2019 or beginning of 2020 was to sort of transfer ownership over these um, apparatuses, you know, from, from France to, to sort of Europeanize the intervention, um, you know, which had been led by France, but had had, had you know, um, robust support from Europe, also from the United States. Um, so you had the introduction of this EU um, task force, Takuba, which was meant to um, sort of take over for Barkhane, you know, which, which could do counter-terror operations unlike the UN peacekeeping force and, and unlike, um, you know, the European soldiers who were already in country doing sort of training missions, but not able to undertake um, operations on their own. So while um, there was this process of, while France was trying to sort of uh, Europeanize the response in a way that would take some of the heat off of itself and take some of the expense off of itself, or maybe most of the heat and most of the expense, um, as this was happening, you know, you had the coup, the first coup in Mali. Um, and then that only didn't get resolved, but it got sort of doubled down on with the second coup. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's happening now is these these um, entities are shifting to Niger. Um, they're they're kind of setting up in in Niger, Barkhane, uh, Takuba, um, and you know. So there's a big question of of what impact um, their presence, you know, coming off of what can't quite be qualified as a success in Mali. Uh, is, is going to have in, in Niger, which has a lot of um, the same um, vulnerabilities that, that Mali does. And then are there any like security risks associated with the French departure or are they even at, like, are they even really leaving? Like my understanding of the French departure from Mali is um, they're dragging their heels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Malians have made it very clear that they're no longer welcome there. Um, but you know, it's a kind of a messy, um, situation that takes some time and were there to be another coup, for instance, or some sort of event that shifted power in the capital, uh, the next people to come might say, oh, well, France, we really would like you to stay. Um, so there's, you know, of course an an advantage in, um, not just moving as quickly as possible. Um, there's also a sense in which, you know, um, there's a really strong, um, embargo, you know, being, being, 
supported against um, the transitional authorities and against the country, which is really affecting Malians, um, which is really um, pretty, pretty outrageous when you think about everything that Mali has been through and that Malians have been through, you know, to sort of add um, punitive sanctions uh, on top of that, you know, sanctions which at this point have lasted uh, quite a while, uh, you know, are, are imposed by the West Africa bloc ECOWAS, but, um, you know, with, with a lot of perhaps encouragement from France. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't think most people know that Mali is under sanction either. Like, I don't think most people in the U.S. at least are familiar with with that. When you think of sanctioned countries, we typically think of like Syria, Venezuela, Iran. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I just yeah. wanted to make that point. Yeah, no, and it's just. I mean, it's just. It's just terrible. You know, when you think of. You know, it's, it's terrible, and it's also counterproductive because it's coming at a time when Russia is presenting itself as an alternative security partner. Um, so the the policies of um, sanctions and isolation. Uh, you know, to try to um, topple the junta, you know, who do, frankly, you know, have enough popular support um, to be reckoned with, you know, I would say, um, you know, the sanctions, the sanctions don't seem to be, there's, there's this sort of hope that they're going to just crumble, that the state's going to run out of money, um, you know, that you can kind of smoke them out with sanctions. Uh, I don't know, has that ever worked anywhere? <laughs> it actually hasn't, no. <laughs> you're, Cuba's, you're Cuba's, sure, Cuba's you know, still going pretty strong. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many decades, you know, how many decades, you know, it always, it always seems to have the opposite effect. No, I mean, it, it does, um, obviously know, it does, Mali's it does, it does do like tremendous damage. Of course. I'm sure you've seen the impacts of that. I've seen the impacts of that in various countries, but yeah, absolutely. There's probably, I don't, I think there's been a study done before, like, and it, it there's never, there's not a single example of like a government falling because of sanctions. So yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in this case, in particular, when you think about what Malians are going through in terms of the conflict, when you think about rising food prices, you know, yeah. and then you think about the fact that the, the neighboring states, you know, still have the land borders, you know, it's a landlocked country and their neighbors have, have sealed the land borders, um, you know, with the exception of, of Guinea, which has its own coup, coup, in place, coup regime in place. Um, and now there's this sort of brotherhood of coups <laughs> that's, that's emerging. Um, but to get back to Russia, you know, the, the, there's the, the, the effects of these policies of sanctions and, and isolation um, are to really sort of push uh, the transitional authorities to rely more on, on Russia as an alternative security provider or as, as some sort of partner um, internationally. Um, and we've seen, you know, very quickly um, some of the, the terrible consequences of that um, with a, you know, purportedly counter-terror raid that took place um, by you know, undertaken by Malian security forces with um, the, you know, mercenaries from the, the Kremlin-linked Wagner group. Yeah. And um, which you, you recently, know, which you hundreds, recently wrote about, which you recently wrote about for the nation, I should add. Um, but I actually want to ask you about, about Russia in this, in this context. I mean, of course, I'm not surprised the Europeans are really good at shooting themselves in the foot in terms of what's in their interest. Um, but when did Russia start poking around the Sahel and what are its motives and can you explain like where they are and what they're doing as far as you know? The, you know, Russia and Mali have relations that date back to the sixties, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and Russia has been, you know, has uh, most Malian arms have been are purchased from Russia, you know, so it's not, it's not new. That's of course at the state level, um, the contracts with the um, Wagner group, you know, it hasn't been confirmed by the Malian authorities, but I think a, uh, um, Lavrov or a senior Russian official sort of blurted it out recently, you know, that, that Wagner is in, in fact in Mali, um, sort of an open secret. Um, 
that's that's a new that's a new development. Um, it was very linked to the uh, tumultuous, um, you know, the, the tensions that developed between the transitional authorities in France, um, where you know they started to sort of say, you know, well, if you're not going to work with us, we know someone else. You know, we have another partner who is willing to work with us. Um, you know, and then that sort of um, outrage. You know, at one point, I think France and the EU tried to sort of say, "Oh, well, you, you, it's it's unthinkable." You know, it's forbidden. And then it was like, "Well, actually, you don't have the authority to." You know, you you might you might have invested billions of euros, but you know that doesn't mean that you you know um, have have that level of sovereignty in, in this country. Um, you know, and again, this is one of the things that people in the streets are responding to in the transitional authorities is that they do what they want. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not beholden. Um, so it's a, it's a disadvantage in the sense that they're running out of cash. Um, uh, but it's an advantage in the sense of there's a sense, there's a, t- a type of popular legitimacy that goes along with standing up to these actors in that way. Um, it kind of reminds me, Russia- well, real yeah. quick, before you do that, it also just, I just wanted to note, like, it's sort of a reminder or harkens back to the first cold war, I guess we can say we're in another one now, but the first cold war when oftentimes these, um, developing countries, would end up like, you know, leveraging one country against the other um, is, is what that reminds me of. Yeah. But anyways, please continue on, on Russian interests. Yeah. And I think that's the best case scenario. And I do think, I actually think, you know, the, the, the turning of everything towards Ukraine is ultimately going to take some of the pressure off the Sahel and probably help, help improve things as Sahelians can start to kind of play some of these interests off, off of each other. Um, you know, sometimes it's the caring attention that does more harm, you know, than, than et cetera. Um, but, you know, just to go back to, I mean, you were sort of asking what, what, does, what does Russia want? Um, you know, what does Russia want in the region? I think in some degree, you know, to, to act as a spoiler against France, to sort of push back, push back against France, which, you know, considers the Sahel as a major priority um, in its own foreign, foreign policy agenda. And as we've seen, you know, that's, this is the only space where it really is able to act like uh, a superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite, it's quite... Um, humiliating, uh, you know, for Russia on the back of all of these, you know, a decade of very expensive efforts for Russia to just sort of come in and um, start, yeah. start working, start working with them on some of these, some of these issues. Um, I think Russia also, you know, and, and again, you know, you have to, this isn't, this, these aren't state actors, right? These are, these are private military contractors mm-hmm. with shady links to the state. Um, so that's, that's an important distinction too. But um you know, I think we're seeing all of the all of the superpowers step up their game across the African continent, um, and you know this is this is certainly a way to expedite um, your your influence and your links to um, central power on the ground. Um, you know, and the Malians, for their part, I mean, they're they're really in need. Um, they you know the conflict started in the north, moved to the center. It's pretty close to the capital. It's starting to crop up in the south, um, and you know they're they're crumbling. They're completely unprepared. Um, and you know, it's, it's, there's, there's a, there's sort of a desperation on their part. Um, so any, you know, strong actor that sort of comes in and says, you know, we're going to help you deal with these guys in the center, you know, um, you know, it's, there, there's an appeal and there's not a lot of options. And then out of curiosity, are you aware of any other role for countries such as like Israel or Turkey in the Sahel? I mean, they have obviously, um, involvement in other parts of Africa. Yeah, um, Turkey is becoming uh, more and more of a significant actor in, in the central Sahel and on, on really multiple fronts um, in ways that are, can, can often be sort of subtle and, and interesting. Um, you know, they've invested a lot in education and, and in schools and hospitals, um, which is a great approach. 
you know, if, if Russia is coming and leading with, you know, Wagner Group, um, you know, Turkey, Turkey is kind of leading with um, hospitals and, and schools. Um, and that's fantastic. I mean, that's really what that's really what Sahelians want. Um, and that's really what will contribute to long term stability. You know, it's it's not massive territory wide projects, but they're they're significant. You know, they're they're investments. Um, also, you know, the 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 there's a link insofar as you know Turkey is a Muslim country. Um, you know, there there are ways in which um, Turkey can work with religious authorities or um, fund mosques. Um, you know, in in so far non problematic ways. Um, you know, that makes them you know a more a more appealing external actor. Um, you know, and, and potential partner. Um, so Turkey, Turkey is a relatively new um, entity in the region, and one one that is is playing a pretty good game so far. Uh, in terms of Israel, I would I would um, shift the focus a bit north towards Morocco, Algeria, mm. um, and and look at look at that. So um, the uh, you know the the Trump administration had normalized um, Morocco's claim to have sovereignty over the Western Sahara. Um, sorry, the Moroccan, the, the Trump administration um, recognized yeah. Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara in exchange for Morocco committing to normalize relations with Israel. Um, and this has had a whole uh, huge impact on, on North Africa and it will eventually make its way, sooner or later will make its way into the Sahel as well. Um, but You've had, you know, sort of hostile actions undertaken by Morocco and Israel against um, Western Sahara and Algeria. So, for instance, you had uh, there were revelations that the Pegasus surveillance software, um, you know, had been used to spy on senior Algerian um, political and military officials. Uh, and there was, um, you know, there, there are huge uh, arms deals being concluded um, between Morocco and Israel. Uh, so this is, this is quite new. Um, Algeria is very unhappy about having, um, you know, the, the presence of what it sees as a hostile actor um, at its borders. Um, Algeria didn't like having the presence of another hostile actor, France, at its southern border. Um, and now just as France is leaving, it has Israel coming in. Uh, you know, so um, there's been a lot of there's been a sort of rapid escalation in tensions between Morocco and Algeria um, that hasn't received a lot of attention and, um, you know, that can be, can be problematic. I actually had a piece out um, just yesterday on, on oh. um, some of the, the escalation and sort of how, um, you know, yeah, just kind of looking at you yeah, know, how, well, where, how, how the where U.S. should adjust its position. Where, where can we find, I was going to ask, where can we find this? I can actually link to it in the description. <laughs> Oh, great. That would be good. It's, it's in foreign affairs. Great. Um, and it's kind of looking at, you know, the, the main argument of the piece is that, uh, you know, Trump made this after Trump lost re-election. He made this uh, unilateral proclamation, um, you know, recognizing Moroccan sovereignty over this right. territory that has been disputed for 50 years, um, reversing in doing so, reversing decades of, of neutral U.S. policy. Uh, and there was expectations that when Biden came in, um, you know, he would he would perhaps walk this back or do something to mitigate the fallout of it. Um, and so far, we we haven't really seen that, but we have seen the consequences of of um, trading off, you know, Moroccan sovereignty in the Western Sahara for um, Morocco recognizing Israel, which was right. you know, a a bad deal because Morocco and Israel have have had very close cultural economic like they weren't at war for decades. <laughs> yeah, they were in fact they were in fact very very close to one another. Um, yeah. 
and uh, has has set off you know a, a chain of of um, really destabilizing uh, regional um, events. Uh, yeah. Well, so I just have a couple more questions here. I promise. I know I've taken a lot of your time, and you're probably getting parched. But um, I wanted to also ask you know while we're on the topic of all of these different actors. What about the Chinese? Are they supporting infrastructure or establishing close relationships with governments there? I know China is involved in other parts of Africa, but we don't hear so much about China, China and the Sahel. Yeah, I, you know, I haven't really worked. I haven't really worked on on China. It's a major economic actor. Mm-hmm. It's not getting involved in in the military side of things. You know, it's supported UN led um, mediation, you know, efforts and and peacekeeping efforts. Um, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not sort of one of the key, um, it's a key economic actor, but in terms of the conflict, um, it hasn't, hasn't really, it's, it's sort of wisely, um, stayed on on the sidelines. Very typical China. Um, and then lastly, you know, what about the U S what's the U S up to? Like, have they just, had they just ceded the area to the French and will they try to compete with the Russians now that Russia is getting involved or is involved? The U.S. has been, from what I've seen, the U.S. has been very happy for France to sort of take the lead, mm-hmm. um, you know, in part because, you know, the advantage of that is, of course, if things go very wrong, you know, no one's, no one's um, slamming the U.S. for, you know, the catastrophes in, in Mali. Um, but they have provided key forms of support, um, you know, to, to um, different aspects of, of stabilization efforts, you know, and to, and to Operation Barkhan in, um, in Mali and across the Sahel. Um, we're seeing, you know, we haven't really seen much, uh, we're kind of waiting to see what the Biden administration will, what posture the Biden administration might adopt. Um, under Trump, we had for the first time a U.S. special envoy to the Sahel. Um, that was, uh, a really, I think I would say it's a really important position and one that should be maintained. Um, it's still vacant for the moment, but you know, it's, it's really an opportunity to sort of streamline different types of policy in the region and, and ensure that, um, there are different actions are, are coordinated um, and sort of overseen by someone who can, you know, ideally think sort of strategically about um, stabilization and, and conflict resolution. And, um, you know, also the, the person who was in that role previously was, you know, often quite, quite critical of, of um, you know, French efforts or how things were um, evolving. So that was, you know, I think that's, that's useful, um, given that the U.S. is spending quite a lot of money um, in the region on, you know, political projects, on military projects. There's a, you know, big drone base in northern Niger um, that, as far as I know, no one really knows what to do with. Um, it's, it's active, but it's not really clear what, how it, what, what sort of strategy it fits into or, or um, how it's going to be used. Um, so I think, you know, and this is something I mentioned in, in the foreign affairs piece, I think it's, it's a good idea for the Biden administration to sort of keep that position and to make sure that whoever is appointed um, to, to fill it uh, is someone who also has a, a very kind of nuanced grasp of what's happening in, in North Africa, um, particularly between Morocco and Algeria, because there are ways in which um, Morocco-Algeria dynamics influence the Sahel, there are ways in which the Sahel dynamics influence Morocco-Algeria. Um, and it's, it's, an important, it's an important role um, you know, for the U.S. to be able to pursue, you know, sort of responsible, responsible policies in the region. Um, having said that, you know, I think there's, you know, there are a lot of strong efforts to, you know, support development projects. Um, the U.S. hasn't been at the forefront of um, military, you know, there were at times it's been revealed that U.S. troops are doing more than Americans are aware of. 
Um, it's usually the case. You know, so we had four, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in 2017, I believe it was 2017, there were four, four um, U.S. troops who were killed in an operation in, in Niger. Um, and that sparked a lot of backlash and, you know, Congress, um, you know, was, was not happy. And um, since then, you know, we haven't really heard, you don't really hear much about American troops on the ground. Um, you know, certainly there's, there's um, UAV uh, operations and support being given to the French. Um, but, you know, it's, it's um, overall, it's, it's an area that I think the U.S. is sort of happy to play more of a backseat role in. Um, you know, the Americans don't see it as having any real strategic um, interest for, for the U.S. Um, compared to, for instance, the coastal, the coastal countries, you know, that do have oil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's, you know, in the name of the global war on terror, you know, there are, there's support for French efforts to go up against Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Um, but the U.S. Isn't, isn't in a leadership role in that area. Um, and I think it's in some, at, at some times... Um, could actually play a more, you know, in part because it's disinterested, could par- could actually play um, a more useful role in in that area, you know, as as a counterweight to to other actors. I see. Well, on that note, I really want to thank you for giving me an hour of your time. Uh, this was a, a great discussion, um, and I hope we can have you back on at some point in the future. Thank you so much, Anna. Thanks, Ronnie. It was a pleasure discussing with you. Thank you very much. <laughs>